And as you're seated, uh, I invite you to turn this morning to Psalm 82. Uh, we're going to start uh, yet another topical series. Uh, this is the longest I've ever preached topical series in my life, but when we're done with this one, my plan is to actually go and do what I like to do best, which is preach in a book. I'm thinking of Ruth, Ruth Esther, maybe Judges. We'll see. Uh, but this morning, we're going to start another short topical series reflecting on who our God is. Uh, now, some of us might be thinking, well, I'm a Christian. I know who my God is. So this is uh, clearly an evangelistic series, and so I'm going to check Instagram uh, while, I, while I sit here. Uh, I hope that this bears evangelistic fruit, uh, but this is actually a series that's aimed at us. Christians. If you spend any time in the Bible, you'll see that one of the things God is most focused on is getting his people to know him better. And God is concerned about that because at the heart of discipleship is following Jesus. And the better we know Jesus, the more we'll be able to follow him and the more our lives will look like his life. And that's why we're starting this morning in Psalm 82, uh, because it does two things. The first is it tells us that our God is just, explaining a little bit about what that means and why it's important to God that we know that. You're going to see that this morning. But the other thing Psalm 82 does is provide us with a tool to help us evaluate how well we know God and his justice. Uh, my kids have one of those books where the pictures are drawn with uh, crisscrossing red and blue lines. And when you look at the picture with your naked eye, you can make out the picture, but it's not clear and you're not always totally sure that you're seeing it right. But if you look at it through this like special set of glasses, it brings those lines together and you can see the picture very clearly. Uh, sometimes our discipleship, sometimes our knowledge of God can, can be like those picture books where we think, I think I'm seeing God clearly, but I'm not sure that I'm seeing him clearly. Uh, Psalm 82 is one of those special sets of glasses God gives us in the Bible to help give us some clarity. And it does that, as you'll see, by focusing on God's justice. So uh, let's read Psalm 82. We'll pray, and then we'll look at uh, three points this morning. God's concern from his justice, that'll be verses 1 through 4. The catastrophe of bad discipleship, that'll be verse 5. And then finally, how God's justice brings salvation, verses 6 through 8. So let's read now God's word, starting in Psalm 82. Let's give now our full attention to, uh, to what God has to say here. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. 
Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this word which you have given to us for our instruction and edification so that through it we might know you and be able to follow you more closely. Father, we know, though, that uh, without your Spirit's work in our hearts and lives right now, that your word is merely to us a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And so, Father, we pray that your Spirit would now go forth with your word so that we might have ears to hear it, minds to understand it, and hearts to believe it. And Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first thing we're going to reflect on this morning is God's concern for his justice. So we're told in verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. In the Bible, the divine council shows up in a number of places, usually in the prophets like Jeremiah or Job. And it's where God decrees judgment. The divine council is a place of justice. And here in Psalm 82, God takes his place in the divine council to give a judgment about what are called gods. And now I think it's good for you to know that there's a little bit of a disagreement in church history about what's meant by gods here. Uh, a number of Christians, including uh, the preeminent John Calvin, believe that gods means human kings and human judges. And that's because occasionally in the Bible, the Hebrew word for gods will refer to human rulers, especially when the context is about human rulers being called to bring justice like God brings justice. Uh, it's not a bad reading of the text, but I don't think that human rulers are what God is talking about in the first instance in Psalm 82. I think you can extend it to human rulers. I think we ought to extend it to human rulers. But in the first instance, it seems to me that God's here means all the other idols that are on offer in our world. Buddha, Allah, ourselves, power, money, fame, uh, all the things that claim that if we love them first and serve them well, we'll have blessing and joy in our best life now. And I think that because Psalm 82 follows Psalm 81, which is a psalm where God laments that Israel keeps listening to false gods and not to him. And then after Psalm 82 comes Psalm 83, where the psalmist wants God to answer him so that everyone would know that the Lord, Jesus, is the real God and not the idols of this world. So the context is life with God in a world of idols, or here, gods, uh, powers who we follow who aren't Jesus. So in verse 1 of Psalm 82, Jesus summons all of the gods of this world to his council, and he accuses them in verses 2 through 4 of being unjust because they are partial and neglectful. So he says, 
How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Selah is a Hebrew word that means rest. We don't know exactly what it means, but certainly the point seems to be, in general, meditate on this, think about this, contemplate what this means. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So you can hear God says that they are partial judges. And partiality, kids, means that you decide between two people because you like one of them more. So if your best friend and someone you didn't like were having an argument about whose toy it was, and you knew that the person you didn't like was right, but you sided with your best friend because they're your best friend and you don't like them, that's partiality. You can also be partial because uh, you want something that only one person can give you. So to flip the scenario around, you could have a situation where your friend has the toy. Uh, you have a friend and you have someone you don't like, but they have the toy that you want. And you can say, well, I know my friend is right, but I want the toy. So I'm going to side with them to get the toy. That's what partiality looks like. That's what partiality means. And God says that these gods of this world are partial judges. God says that when people come before these so-called gods, these gods deny the claims of the weak and the socially vulnerable. They don't maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute because they are partial against these groups. Now, why would that be? Well, isn't it because the weak, the socially vulnerable, the afflicted, the poor, they can't give these gods anything of value. They can't build them temples. They can't pay for sacrifices. They can't carry their fame around the world. And since these idols have nothing to gain from showing these kinds of people justice, they allow them to be exploited by those who will give them what they want. But not only that, in verse 4, God also accuses these gods of neglect. He says that they don't intentionally and actively protect the vulnerable. Because if you're going to rescue the weak and the needy, like God calls them to do in verse 4, you actually have to come to their aid. Moreover, Jesus says these so-called gods don't defend them from the exploitation and abuse of others. That's what deliver means. Deliver means to come to someone's rescue when they are being attacked. And the reason why I'm calling this neglect is that these are poor people or they're people without families, the fatherless and the widow. These are people who do not have the social connections or the social standing to, uh, that, that would be needed for other people to know that they need help and seek help on their behalf. These are people who need someone to intentionally look after them and help them the way that God himself does with them and with all of creation. And God says these gods' failure to do this, their neglect, means that they aren't practicing justice. And by the way, isn't this an interesting view of justice? Uh, for Jesus, justice here isn't only equal treatment under the law or 
you know, making sure everyone gets what they deserve, their just desserts. For Jesus, justice is also protection and help. Uh, we usually, or at least I usually, think of protection and defense as aspects more of love and mercy than of justice per se. And so what I learned this week uh, from Psalm 82 is that to Jesus, justice, mercy, and love, aspects of those things, they are connected in important ways that I maybe have not connected them in my life in the way that Jesus wants me to. Uh, Now, before moving on to our second point, I do want to make one final observation about why Jesus uses the exploitation of the poor and the socially vulnerable as a litmus test here, and not just here, uh, throughout the Bible, the treatment of these groups is used as a a litmus test for whether or not people are just, kings are just, the gods are just. Why? Well, there seems to be two reasons in Scripture. The first is that if you're giving justice to people who cannot pay for it, and cannot reward you for it in any way, then you're probably acting impartially towards everyone. You're not deciding on the basis of the person. You're deciding on the basis of the cause. It's a sign that you are likely impartial as a judge. The second reason, this is also important, is that Jesus loves his people. And though he distributes money, power, social standing, Differently, in the mystery of his wisdom and providence, his watchfulness of them is not attached to those things. Jesus does not say, you get more justice because I gave you more money or more social standing. He says, I give you justice because you are my people and I love you. And as we've seen, Jesus to Jesus, justice means protecting and defending people regardless of his other providential arrangements. So if you're protecting and defending those who cannot protect or defend themselves, you're not making judgments based upon, again, the kind of person standing in front of you, but the fact that there is a person standing in front of you whose right needs to be protected. That's what God does, and that's what God wants. And that's what God says these idols, our idols, they don't do that. And very importantly to the psalmist and to God here, they don't teach their followers to do that. Which brings us to our second point, which is the catastrophe of bad discipleship. So verse 5, the psalmist speaks now, uh, this is not God speaking, this is the psalmist making an observation. He says, they have neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. It's interesting to ask, who are the they? that have neither knowledge nor understanding and who walk in darkness. Uh, Because grammatically, the they can be one of three groups. It could be the unjust gods that Jesus is judging in the council. It could be the wicked who are following these gods. Or it could be the helpless who are being mistreated by them. And I think all three are good choices. I believe truly that God intends us to think about all three here. So quickly, if the they refers to these so-called gods, then their lack of knowledge and understanding and their walking in darkness means 
that they just don't know how to be just. It's not in their nature to be impartial and to rescue the needy. And so asking these idols for justice would be like asking your dog to fly. It's just not something that it can do. It's an impossibility. Relatedly, if the they are the wicked who follow these gods, then these are people who will not practice justice because there's no one to call them to repentance and to teach them how to be just. They don't have the knowledge or the understanding because there's no one to teach them. And so they walk in darkness because there's no one to correct them and instruct them. And here we need, I think, particularly to connect this to our introduction. It's important to notice that this is a psalm of Asaph, who was a priest in Israel, and that the context, Psalm 81 and Psalm 83, are about God's relationship to Israel. And that means that the wicked here are not primarily the unbelievers out there who are following idols. These are members of God's people who are following idols. Now, why? Now, maybe they don't know justice because they were poorly discipled in the Bible. I was reading Judges again recently, and I was struck how at the end of, the, end of Judges, uh, there's this woman who is so happy, this Israelite woman, she's so happy to get her stolen silver back that she says, I'm going to dedicate this to the Lord and make him a graven image. He'll be so happy. And you, if you know the Ten Commandments, you know God says, don't make graven images. She was poorly discipled by the leadership in Israel. She thought she was serving Jesus, and she wasn't. That can happen. That could be what's happening here in the psalm. Or maybe it could just be that the wicked in Israel knew that they were following idols, and for whatever reason, they just didn't care. I like this way better. It's more, it's easier. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we can be in the church, sit in the pews, preach in the pulpit, and be more attentive to the voice of idols than the voice of Jesus. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, God cries out in Psalm 81, verse 8. And it's important, I think, especially for us, my friends, to notice this because the they can also be the people who are being mistreated and oppressed. And if it's that group, then what it means for them to walk in darkness without knowledge or understanding is that they don't know who to turn to for help anymore. Remember, these are Israelites. These are members of God's people. They've been taught about God's justice from the Bible since they were born, right? Nine months in the womb, they've been hearing about this stuff. Uh, they've been taught that God cares for them himself and that God cares for them through his people. But if his people withhold their care for them, then everything is thrown into disarray. Is God really who he says he is? If I'm being abused by the church, is God really merciful? Can I really trust Jesus? Where can I go for help if God's own people neglect me and are partial against me? And that's why verse 5 ends with, 
All the foundations of the earth are shaken. In the Bible, this phrase refers to either the foundations of justice or the foundations of a holy community built on love or on the foundations of faith. Idols who can't teach justice shake the foundations of justice in the people of God. Followers of those idols shake the foundation of a holy community built on love. And those who are harmed by them and the world that watches them be harmed by them, often in the name of Jesus, have the foundations of faith in God shaken. Is God really who he says he is? See, this is why I'm calling it the catastrophe of bad discipleship. Of being discipled by God's idols who cannot teach justice, of practicing injustice, and of suffering injustice, all because we are not following the living and the true God. But thankfully, because our God is just, he is not content to leave things like this. And here's our final point, which is God's justice brings salvation. This is from verses 6 through 7. I said, this is God speaking, You are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Uh, so verses 6 through 7 are actually a pretty recognizable Hebrew idiom that's actually best translated this way. And I'm going to add as much sarcasm to this as I can. I had thought you were God's sons of the Most High. But now I see you're just like people, and you're going to die and fall like any prince, like anyone who thinks they're, you know, untouchable, and yet death comes from them. It's going to come for you. Here's what God is saying. You idols, you've set yourselves up as though you were me. But that can't be, because you're not just. You don't execute justice. You show partiality. You don't rescue the needy or defend the defenseless. You so-called gods are not my son. And so God says sarcastically, I thought you were gods, but now I see you're just like people, or literally like Adam, which I think is a double entendre, standing in for people, or like Adam. And here's what I think God means by this comparison to Adam. Adam was an image bearer of God, right? He's called God's son explicitly in Luke's gospel. Uh, he was called as God's image bearer to render justice and judgment like God did. Did he? Did he come to Eve's aid when she was being tempted by the serpent? Did he judge the words of the snake as he heard them being spoke to his wife? No. And while maybe this isn't the best way to put this, we could say that though Adam was created with all the form and appearance of godliness, he didn't fill out his life with godliness. He didn't fill it out with justice. And what I think we see here is God saying, you idols, you appear to be like me, powerful, desirable, in control, worthy of worship, but you don't have the substance. You're not filling it out. You're not just. 
And then what did God do to Adam? Well, he was judged and Adam had to suffer death. And now what's going to happen to you idols? I'm going to judge you. You will die and you will fall just like any other human ruler, like any prince. So God comes in his justice to destroy the idols of this world. Why? So that we can be set free to see him and love and worship him. But God doesn't simply just leave it there, does he? Because remember, to God, justice means, in part, saving the helpless. And so we read this prayer in verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. See, the psalmist wants God to give him and the world the justice that these idols and their followers denied to the world. God, don't just stand in the divine council rendering judgment. Come and give us judgment here on earth. Uh, now, you would think that that prayer would probably strike fear into the psalmist's heart, right? Um, I hope none of us are coming away from this sermon thinking, oh man, I'm really glad that I am just, just like God is just. Uh, in writing this sermon, I've been uncomfortable all week. Uh, I keep thinking, man, I am just not the disciple of Jesus' justice that I need to be and want to be. I'm sure the psalmist felt that way too. So why is he praying? For God to come down in justice. Well, because of the final part of the sentence. For you shall inherit the nations, which is an Old Testament way of saying, for you will save your sinful people and give them an eternal home with you. You see, the psalmist recognizes that while he does deserve to be judged like the wicked, it's also true that God has promised salvation. And he's seen in God's judgment in the council that God's justice is found not only in calling out these gods and the wicked, but in defending those who cannot defend or save themselves. And so the psalmist trusts that God, being who he is, will render his justice towards him, a helpless sinner who cannot save himself, in a way that saves him and delivers him from death. And that trust was completely well-placed, wasn't it? Because isn't that what Jesus does? In Jesus, God's justice towards the wicked, us, and his justice to the needy, and his mercy, and his goodness, and his holiness, they all meet together in him on the cross to save us. Because on the cross, Jesus showed that he is, unlike these gods, the son of the Most High God. That he is God himself by filling out the form of godliness with all of God's justice and all of God's mercy so that God can say uh, that whoever believes in Christ will be saved because his justice has been meted out in Christ in judgment and in salvation. See, Jesus is God because in him, God's impartial justice was watchfully executed on the cross so that all of us defenseless and needy people who come to Jesus can and will be saved. 
I feel like saying amen and ending the sermon there. I should, but I'm not going to. Uh, I want to end on the point that we started with, which is how Psalm 82 helps us evaluate our knowledge of God and our discipleship of him in that knowledge. I mentioned that Psalm 82 is meant to be read in connection with Psalm 81, which is God's plea for Israel to listen to him, and also with Psalm 83, which is the psalmist's plea that God would act to show the world that Jesus is God and worthy to be followed. And in the middle then is Psalm 82, right? Which, as we've seen, focuses on why God wants us to hear his plea and why we should join the psalmist's plea because the real God executes impartial, impartial, watchful judgment that saves. And we've also seen in verse 5 how Psalm 82 focuses on the consequences of not following the real God, that those who walk in darkness and all that, that's a consequence of not following him. All of this tells me that one of the reasons why God included this in the Psalms is because it teaches us, it's one of the things he uses to teach us, how to discern if we are following Jesus or some idol we've put in his place. And I want to be clear here, my point is not to talk now about our salvation. Whenever we talk about, you know, depth of discipleship and, and closeness of discipleship, people are always starting to wonder, am I saved or not? Uh, being saved does not mean being perfect, right? Someone should say amen to that. Yeah, some people did. Yeah, it does not mean being perfect. Was David a disciple after God's own heart? Yeah, was he perfect? No, no, he was not. This is, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about discipleship, about growing as faithful followers of Jesus in our daily life. Because as Christians, we are called by Jesus to conform more and more of our life to his word each day. But at the same time, each day, we are faced with the call of Jesus and the call of this world's gods. And sometimes, knowing whether or not we are listening to Jesus or listening to idols can be difficult to discern. This psalm is a light in the darkness of our confusion. Because here God is asking us, uh, giving us a set of questions that we can ask of these idols. Does your discipleship, does the way you're following me, love the way that I show justice and express the way that I show justice? Are the things that you love and are pattering your life after, are they teaching you to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, to rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And I'll just be honest, Psalm 82 exposed an idol in my own life this week in the way that I don't always give justice to my children and to other people in my family. I don't always come to their need or to their aid because I have an idol of pleasure. If I was an ancient Greek, I would call him Dionysus, which is what the ancient Greeks called their idol of pleasure. Where I would rather not sacrifice myself to give justice and protection to those around me. I'd rather sacrifice to my idol of pleasure and withhold those things because it's inconvenient. It's hard to see. It's hard to see, especially when you're exercising an idol towards people you deeply love. 
right? And let's be honest, not only is it hard to see, it's harder to tear down the idol's altars in your life in Jesus' name. But the good news is, and here's where Psalm 82 is very helpful again, God is just. And God's justice means that he defends us. Even from powers that are too big for us to confront, like the idol of pleasure, money, fame, or whatever your particular idol might be, God knows it's too big for you. But his justice comes to defend you. He comes to rescue us when we're in danger. He comes to rescue those that our idolatry puts in danger. And he comes to transform us by his spirit because that's what his justice looks like in the lives of his people. And so my encouragement to you, my friends, is to use Psalm 82 as a way to discern. Uh, like, Like I tried to do and I'm going to try to do in the weeks ahead, what idols you might be following in your own life and then to trust that because God is just, he will save you and deliver you from them and that he will teach you his justice, that he will transform you into a person who looks like a son of the Most High, who we know is Jesus, because Jesus has already perfectly executed God's impartial and watchful justice for our salvation, and now dwells with his people, makes his home with them, as God tells us in John, our confession of our assurance of pardon passage this morning, because he loves you. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing your justice to all of us without partiality. And thank you that your justice is not cold and unfeeling, but watchful and protecting. Uh, Thank you that your justice saw not only our sin, but also our enslavement to sin. And thank you that in your justice and mercy, you came down in Jesus to defend and save us. Father, help us to see the fruit of your justice more clearly in our lives. And through that sight, help us to grow in the ways that we show justice to one another and to our neighbors, uh, so that your son Jesus might be seen in us and his glory increased in the world. And Father, also please help us to look with a clear eye through this scripture at our own life, so that we can not only identify the idols that we may be following, but in confidence, uh, bring them to you, knowing that in your justice, you will tear them down because you long to free us from the tyranny of sin and to make us more and more experience the life which you already given us through our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.